0: You're listening to Deep Detroit Worldwide Podcast, where we highlight the stories of native Detroiters that are doing great things in their community and using their impact across the globe. I'm Marquise Taylor. Welcome to the Deep. What up, though? Welcome to another installment of the Detroit Worldwide Podcast. I am Marquise Taylor. And on this week's edition of the podcast, we had the opportunity to sit down with someone that is doing some amazing work in our nation's capital. Joining us on the podcast this week was Dr. Leslie Ford. And in this particular conversation, you are going to learn about everything that she is doing in Washington, D.C. She currently serves as a policy associate for the Urban Institute and is doing an amazing job advocating on behalf of nonprofit organizations that support our people across the nation. In addition to that, you are going to learn about her upbringing in the city of Detroit, as well as the time she spent at the University of Michigan, Harvard University, and most importantly, Duke University, where she completed her doctoral degree in sociology. Every institution that I just named is world-renowned. I cannot say enough about this episode. Shout-out to my bro, Dave Tinsley, for connecting the two of us. I hope that you all enjoy this discussion as much as I enjoy recording it. Now, all of that being said, you have heard enough from me. So why don't we dive into the discussion that I had with the one and only Dr. Leslie Ford. All right, this is Detroit Worldwide, and joining us today is Dr. Leslie Ford, and Dr. Ford is going to talk about all of the amazing work that she is doing. She is not only a graduate of the University of Michigan, she's also a graduate of Harvard as well as Duke University. And she's doing some amazing work in our nation's capital, focused on nonprofits. We're going to talk about all of those things. We're going to talk about her upbringing in Detroit. And we're going to keep it live. We're going to keep it loose. And as always, we're going to keep it Detroit. So, Leslie, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. What up, though? What
1: up, though? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to... To talk with you and and share more about myself and learn more about you and talk about the city that I love.
0: For sure, for sure. We had a really good conversation offline, so I feel like that's going to carry over into this episode. And before we get started, I got to give a shout out to my dude, David Tinsley, for connecting the two of us. I got so much love for that dude. He's shown so much support to the podcast. It was only right that we return the favor and say, David, thank you so much. And thank you for connecting me with Leslie. I think this is going to be a dope conversation. Yes, Dave is awesome. Diving into our first question, I was wondering if you can begin by telling our listening audience more about you and some of the work that you're currently doing.
1: Sure, I'm happy to. So, I am a researcher at the Urban Institute currently. The Urban Institute is a social and economic policy research center in Washington, D.C. It was founded over 50 years ago. Its goal is to provide independent, unbiased, nonpartisan research to federal agencies, and over the years, it's expanded to corporate partners, philanthropy, funders of all kinds who are interested in generating evidence-based insights for their work. There are a number of centers, including our tax policy center, our justice policy center, education, health. I actually work in the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy. And there, we do research on nonprofit trends in the U.S. and around the world. We do philanthropic advising. We do research essentially to advance the sector and to ensure it's meeting the needs of diverse communities and advancing equity and promoting justice in the sector. And um, currently, just to give you a sense of maybe the kind of work that I do there, there is a federal evaluation that I'm currently working on. Uh, The Institute for Museum and Library Services is a federal agency based here in D.C. And about 14 years ago, they received some authorizing legislation to advance and protect African-American history and culture in the arts. And through this authorizing legislation, they received funding to start or establish the National Museum for African-American History and Culture Mm. in Washington, D.C. And and as a part of the legislation as well, they were able to establish a grant-making program that targets African-American history and cultural institutions and HBCUs. And so Mm. the evaluation that I'm working on right now is a retrospective evaluation of the impact of the program on, you know, the care and collections at these institutions, the support for museum staff, and just overall, the advancing and the nurturing and support of African-American museums, cultural institutions, HBCUs, and the, and the professionals who work in those institutions.
0: Mm. Well, I'm excited to hear the rest of your story. And I say this because having visited that museum, a few years ago, early when it first opened. That is a phenomenal place, a phenomenal institution. Now, I do want to take it back to where it all began, Detroit, Michigan. So my question is to you, what did life look like for you back home in Detroit growing up?
1: Wow, this is such a good question. Anytime someone asks me about Detroit or what it was like growing up in Detroit, I always get so nostalgic. I think because Detroit... You know, represents like you know, it's my home place. It's where uh, my grandparents met and married mm-hmm. um, Second Baptist Church on Monroe. Uh, it's where I grew up in the faith at that same church. My mother worked at police headquarters right there on Bobian. Mm-hmm. I grew up not far from there on Saint Alban and Lafayette. Oh. And so I have like all these warm, like really, really, really fond memories. So I was raised by my mom with my older brother. And you know, growing up, our our early sort of education, we both went to Burton International as little ones. And then I went to Bates Academy and then to Renaissance for high school. And you know, in addition to, you know, being raised by my mom, my aunt and uncle. We're living on the west side, near seven mile in Warrington. So I got a lot of time with them and maybe most importantly my grandparents were right on Leslie Street between <laughs> Homer and Potowski on the west side as well. And so I got to spend a lot of time with them growing up. And I would just say like I had, you know, such a, a fortunate, supportive, very, very loving childhood I felt very like nurtured and protected and I had great exposure I feel like I went to great schools I had mentors and teachers and church family and you know a lot of folks who were really really supportive And yeah, I was really fortunate again, like that my grandparents were there. And by the time I was born, they were retired. And so their favorite thing to do is like spend time with me. So I got a lot of extra love and attention and yeah, I was able to take part in like a lot of programs I did. Growing up, I did ballet at like Mary Grove College. And I used to tell people when I was a little girl, you know, I go to Mercy College. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, yeah, I went to, you know, summer camps and summer programs and engineering camps and DAPS and equestrian camps and you know all these all these things that I think are sort of typically not associated I think with like a the upbringing of a kid who grows up in Detroit and so in a lot of ways I think my experience was the best of both worlds you know sort of growing up you know in a real urban environment and growing up around a majority, you know, black population, which I think really shaped and formed like my racial identity as well as my intersexual identity as a black woman. It was great to grow up around a culture and people who were just generally supportive of, you know, an affirming of, you know, what it means to be a black girl. And sort of taking those ceilings that might exist in other spaces off, you know, there was never any limit placed on me in terms of geography, like where you grew up, what side of the tracks you grew up on, whether your parents are married or whatever. It was always like, you know, this world is for you as much as it is for anybody else. And I think that Detroit and it's sort of like blue collar work ethic and like that history and legacy of like the industrial movements and, you know, having grandparents and cousins and stuff who worked at plants and that real like work ethic and like what it means to kind of work for the things you want. I think that that was really instilled in me at a young age. And so growing up in Detroit was was a beautiful experience and one that I reflect on really fondly.
0: Awesome. Awesome. There's so much that you were able to experience and it's a lot to unpack. Now, you graduate from Renaissance High School and then you head over to the University of Michigan. Couple mm-hmm. So, my first question is <laughs> what led you to the University of Michigan? Oh. What did community of support look like for you during your time there?
1: Oh, my goodness. So, the long story short is that my mother and my older brother and my I call him my brother. We don't use the term step or anything like that, but my other brother also went to Michigan. And so it seemed kind of like a natural path that I might end up there as well, but I had explored a lot of other schools. And in fact, I actually thought that I was going to follow in my grandmother's footsteps. I planned on going to Florida A&M. And at the last minute, there were some changes that they made to my scholarship, and it just made much more sense for me to go to Michigan because I had way more funding to go there. So, you know, in addition to, you know, being close to home and being able to see my mom and see my family pretty regularly, I mean, I would say more than two or three weeks didn't go by without me, you know, heading back home and and visiting with family. The amount of support that I got at Michigan from, you know, other students, faculty, staff members at Michigan was unbelievable. So, I mean, I benefited first from the fact that my older brother was still there when I got there. So, he was a senior when I was a freshman. So, there was that layer of older brother support and protection and just, you know, general, like, that's my little sister. Don't mess with her. (laughs) And then it was also orienting to have so many of my friends there. So from my class at Renaissance, if I'm not mistaken, I think 70 of us got into Michigan. I don't remember how many of us ended up going there, but there were at least 30 of us from my class (laughs) at Michigan. So it was easy to find a sense of community because even in our dorm, you know, like seven or eight people I graduated from high school with were there. And one of my childhood friends from Bates, we've been friends since like fifth grade, was my roommate. So... I had a built-in network, built-in support system, built-in friends. And again, coming from Detroit, there were others there were so many other students from the city who ended up at Michigan as well. Some, you know, young ladies who like I played against in sports in high school. We ended up becoming best, best friends during our, you know, first and second years of college between being able to really see myself as a part of a broader Black community at Michigan, which was much larger then than it is now. You know, I think we, we comprised maybe 8% of the, the population at Michigan. It was like we were on our own little HBCU in a way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that really felt very genuine and very real among different Black folks. So Black folks from Chicago, Black folks from LA, Miami, all over, like we just really, really melded and like got very, very close. But then on top of that, Michigan, and I don't know what is the case today, at the time, Michigan had one of the most diverse graduate populations. So you were not only able to see yourself in your peers as an undergrad, but the connections we had to groups like SCORE and the professional schools and their, their Black students, we were able to see ourselves in the law school, in the med school, in PhD programs. So Michigan was a very, very special place for a long time for a number of reasons. And there were a lot of points of connection that helped to create in that sense of community that were far more black faculty members than a lot of other institutions. And we were able to really, really genuinely build
0: like a real sense of community, so. Mm, I love it, I love it. And I've connected with so many Michigan graduates to speak about the same thing, speak about that. Black community that you all were able to create and how it allowed you all to thrive and persist in spite of. Now, you complete your degree in political science from the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. So my question is, where did life take you after that?
1: So I went to the University of Michigan with plans of becoming a corporate attorney I majored in political science and English. And up until my senior year, I just knew that I was going to take the LSAT and go to law school. And it was through my work with the Office of Academic and Multicultural Initiatives and having done a research project my junior year, I think, at the School of Education, that I decided to become a teacher. And I should say I'm also like third generation teacher. So (laughs) it was Surprising to my family, but not wholly, I like out of left field because my grandmother, my aunt and my mom were all educators at different points in their careers. But I took that political science and English degree and I ended up staying at the University of Michigan an additional year in a master's program at the School of Education. And through the education school, I did a one-year master's and earned my teacher certification. And after that, I actually moved back to Detroit, uh, which was shocking to me. And I ended up teaching for six years. So I started my career in Detroit public schools as an eighth grade English teacher and then shifted over to University Prep Academy, where I taught kindergarten and first grade for three years and then sixth, seventh and eighth grade at the middle school.
0: So you dealt with a variety of students in that regard. So I guess as a follow up to that, what did you learn about yourself during that process? Most importantly, I questioned
1: whether or not I ever wanted to have children. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) I loved teaching and it it was interesting. I learned so many things about myself. The archetype for my decision to pursue a career as an eighth grade English teacher is Mrs. Willie Bell Gibson. And I'm not sure if anyone else in any of her interviews would have mentioned her, but she was my eighth grade English teacher at Bates Academy. And she is one of one. And the legacy that she left as as an English teacher and as an educator in Detroit Public Schools is second to none. In my mind, I was going to become the younger version, (laughs) second coming of Willie Bell Gibson. And, you know, a lot had changed, I think about education at that point, about teaching and learning, about curriculum. And so of course I had to adapt and like take a different approach. But one thing I learned is that being a classroom teacher is easily one of the most exhausting professions that you can that you can endeavor if you're gonna do like a good job. And no one told me that I was gonna be that tired, that I was gonna work from seven to seven every day, that I was gonna have to attend to the needs of my students' parents and my students and their diverse, you know, needs. It was not just teaching and learning but that it was, you know, the socio-emotional development, that it was the psychological care, that it was attention and attentiveness to their needs outside of school. When I went from eighth grade down to kindergarten, I learned so much about myself, just my capacity, I think, for, like, patience and empathy, because I couldn't understand why these little children didn't know how to, you know, tie their shoes and zip their coats. I was just like, you need me to do that? Like, what is going on here? But it was such a gift. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my students and their families. And being a teacher, I think in my hometown, I think really resonated with me. And like, it really meant a lot to, I think in some ways, like pay it forward. Like, I think I benefited so much from having really good teachers. And so I think I wanted to, you know, just be that for like another generation of kids in Detroit, Mm. or try to be that.
0: So you were an educator for a number of years. And Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious to know, at what point in your life did you decide to pursue an advanced degree?
1: I could feel while I was teaching middle school at University Prep Academy, we looped with our students. We had the same group for sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And I sort of started to feel like I wanted to not only do something different, but I wanted to have a different kind of impact. I wanted to like challenge myself differently. I wanted to be engaged in other things because, you know, classroom teaching and learning experience was great in ways, but I knew that there were so many factors that were affecting my kids and their their ability to learn and their families. And those were the things, you know, that I started to really get interested in. And so I kind of had that inclination that I wanted to leave when my students were in seventh grade, but I committed to seeing them through, you know, eighth grade and sending them to high school. So While my students were, I think, eighth graders, my last group, I started exploring graduate programs. And I think I was still sort of into, you know, just my focus was on education and like how to improve educational outcomes, how to close racial gaps and disparities in outcomes between, you know, black kids and whatever measures or markers they're using, whether they're white students or Asian students or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my students were perfectly capable, but there were other factors or conditions that were invisible, that were influencing the schools that they attended, their parents' ability to you know, be present and active and economic factors and social factors and races. I just knew that all these things were existed. And so that was sort of what got me curious, like, okay, maybe I need to go back to school so I can kind of learn more about, you know, what is shaping and structuring and informing and influencing the outcomes that we're seeing in schools and what are what is really contributing to these gaps and disparities in educational outcomes and attainment, you know, that we're seeing. So that's what prompted me to start looking at graduate programs the first time. I thought for a while that I wanted to become a superintendent of a school district. And so that was why I made that first move to my first graduate program in education policy and management. And it was while I was there that... I I just got exposed through the program to, you know, not just thinking about education from a district level perspective, but starting to really think about education from like a holistic perspective and how children develop from a developmental perspective, basically, like how do kids develop biologically, neurologically, in terms of neuroscience, what prepares them to do well in school, what factors happen in the family that might be structuring and and shaping their their opportunities. So again, while I was in that master's program in education policy and management, one of my professors actually told me that he thought that I should pursue a PhD. And I knew I wasn't ready to do that in that moment. I was just like, I just want to work a little while and I just want to figure out my life. And after a year of working at a national nonprofit, I went back to that same professor. His name is John Diamond. He's now at Wisconsin. He's actually a native Detroiter. Went to Michigan, grew up in Detroit, and we connected when he was my professor at Harvard. Brilliant scholar, amazing human being. Revisited the conversation about me getting a PhD with him. And he's who sort of helped me, like sort of guide me in like the direction of like, which programs I should be applying to. And so that's what led me to to pursue the PhD.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, Just in reading your bio, super fascinating hearing your story, of course, this is the first person we've interviewed on Detroit Worldwide that is a graduate of Harvard and then also a graduate of Duke University. And I do want to get to Duke University because all three of the schools that you've gone to, Michigan, Harvard, and Duke, are not only Renowned in the country. These are worldwide, no pun intended, institutions that are renowned across the globe. In 2018, you completed your doctoral degree in sociology from Duke University. Could you describe the feeling of being able to achieve this degree at the highest level?
1: So hearing you talk about it, actually like renews my own excitement about it, if I can be honest with you. In 2014, when I started the program, I almost didn't go to Duke. I just want to be really honest about that. So while I was working in Boston, I moved back to Detroit towards the end of 2013, start of 2014, um, because my mother had gotten really ill. And uh, my mom passed in April of 2014. And, you know, that was around the time when, you know, decisions had been coming in and I had gotten into a couple programs and I was trying to decide whether or not I could go or like, you know, whether or not I could leave Detroit. I, I had made the decision, you know, certainly if my mom, you know, needed my care, like I wasn't leaving. I was like, I was going to defer. And then when my mother passed, I didn't really have the motivation to go. But my mother had talked to my aunt and my godmother and told both of them, like, you know, whatever happens, you make sure Leslie goes to do. So I think I felt it wasn't pressure, I think, but the sense of, you know, duty, you know, to honor my mom's wishes, to go forward with the program. And so it was a tough, tough, tough transition. So it was hard to leave home under those circumstances. It was difficult transitioning to a program, I think, while grieving and, You know, it's just a lot, a lot of emotions. So to answer your question, I felt, I think more than I think I felt accomplished, I think I felt relieved Mm.
2: because
1: the program was so demanding. (laughs) It was just... It it was such a rigorous uh, intellectual experience and rigorous more so maybe even emotionally that when I defended my dissertation and they told me I passed and so I was officially Dr. Leslie Ford. instead of feeling, you know, that excitement and like a calm, like, yes, I did it. It felt like the weight of the world (laughs) sort of lifted from my shoulders. And so I think I can look back on it now and feel like this really deep sense of, you know, accomplishment and like, wow, I'm really proud, you know, that I did that. And I know that my grandparents and my mother, you know, are, you know, looking down and I know that they're proud of me. So sometimes it doesn't feel real. If I can be honest, it doesn't feel like it really happened. It doesn't really feel like, did I really do that? And I guess I say this to anyone, maybe to anyone who listens who has experienced like those big losses. Like sometimes it's hard to feel, you know, the same joy that you might feel if the person who would celebrate you the most isn't there, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel more connected to the experience now and more like proud of the accomplishment. Like, wow, I did. That's fantastic. Like, I know my, like, this is what my grandparents would have always wanted. This is what mommy always wanted. Mm-hmm. So it's that deep sense of like, more like gratitude, like, wow, like look at everything they did for me to get here, right? Like, you know, my grandfather's family, they were coal miners and he worked on railroads and worked at the plants. And Mimi came from like super racist, rural Florida and, you know, made her way to Detroit and worked at Uniroyal and then became a teacher and just like really laid that foundation. So I think more than anything, I think I feel just really grateful that you know in just one or two generations you know i can stand on my ancestors shoulders like literally and on the the legacy that you know our family left to me and feel like i like did right by their work because i know it has very little to do with me being special but more like everything to do with like the sacrifices that they made for me to be in a position to even try to navigate these spaces. So mm. that part feels really, really like a super blessing. And I know that they're they're proud. And I feel, I know the city is proud, you know, like it's just so, such a gift, right? To come from where we come from and to be able to accomplish anything really. So yes, I feel very proud of, of finishing the degree and really grateful that I was able to go to a great school and, you know, do work that focused on black folks.
0: I love it. I love it. And we definitely are proud. I know I'm proud just just reading your bio and some of the work that you've been able to do. And um, before I get to my next question, I know it happened a number of years ago, but condolences to you on the loss of your parent. I know that probably was not easy, especially in a program that was as demanding and rigorous as a PhD program. So I just wanted to extend my condolences there.
2: Thank you.
0: So since graduating from Duke, you've been able to lend your knowledge, talent and expertise to the nonprofit world. Could you tell us more about the work that you're currently doing at the Urban Institute?
1: Sure, absolutely. So I was really, really fortunate during my graduate program. While I was at Duke, I think two. there were so, two sort of interesting career turning points. One was during the third year of my program, uh, I got a, an internship. So I had the opportunity to work at the Kresge Foundation, which is the headquarters and based in Troy, Michigan, for a summer because my interest had been peaked about nonprofits and the philanthropic sector. And I was at a point in my graduate program where I was really, really interested in the research that I was doing, but I was also really interested in the practical application of the research that I was doing. So after I interned at Cresby, I think I was pretty sure that I wanted to pursue a career, not necessarily in the academy, but rather maybe at a foundation in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. And so the other turning point was... I was able to connect and sort of build my network in the philanthropic space in North Carolina while I was in graduate school, which was a real gift. And so when I finished my degree at Duke, I moved to Washington, D.C. and took a position as a policy associate at the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute. And just to give you a sense of like the, the kinds of work that we do, Urban is sought out to provide evidence-based research for a number of entities. We've done several things with these entities. One, we've worked with them to provide technical assistance. So for these funders who work with grantees, many of the grantees that they work with, you know, are doing frontline client-facing work in cities around the country. And in some cases, they need to build or strengthen or develop their data in evaluative capacity to sort of, you know, be able to measure and evaluate their programs and processes and also make sure that their, their programs are running efficiently to meet the needs of the people in the communities that they're working with. Then there's this sort of straightforward work that I do on equitable grant making and participatory grant making. So the history and the legacy of philanthropy in this country is really, really, really complicated because for everything that we know about capitalism and everything we know about how wealth is accumulated, it is often at the detriment or to the detriment of people of color. And it's often on the extraction of labor from Black folks in this country. So for many of these philanthropists or individually, you know, very, 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 very wealthy people who have you know, accumulated wealth over time, they are now trying to give back. And they're trying to give back in just and equitable ways and sometimes need guidance on how to, to structure their strategy. So... One thing that I I do is I do research on equitable and participatory practices to see, you know, if you adjust this component of your grant making process or your practice or your program, does it lead to a more equitable outcome? Meaning, does it impact the communities that you want it to have an impact on in a just way? So rather than, for example, funders giving you know millions and millions of dollars to white led large organizations what happens if you give money and invest capital and capacity building support in smaller black led organizations at the community level so it's sort of my job to to do research and make recommendations on essentially how to target investments in ways that benefit uh, and strengthen Black-led, Brown-led, Asian-led, indigenous-led organizations. And then I think maybe the last component is philanthropic advising. So sometimes people come to us with questions about program design or strategy or how to structure a grant-making process or how to formalize a funder collaborative. And so our team will work together to provide them with guidance on how to do that. And we often try you know, to the best of our ability to keep equity at the center of that. And to actually think about, you know, what ways has grant making been inequitable and you know unjust in the past? And how has it prioritized and lifted up and valued white ideologies and white processes and white practices? And how can we shift those so that we're building power and so that we are strengthening black-led organizations to work within the communities that they operate?
0: Mm. So. Saying all of that and just the variety of things that you're able to do in your role, what would you say is the most rewarding aspect in this position?
1: So that is a, an interesting question. The thing that stands out to me, honestly, is over my first, like I think, year and a half with the organization, I was able to interact with grantees a lot. And so through one of our relationships with one of our funders, I got to talk with them, visit their sites learn more about their processes, what they needed help with, and I think coordinating support for them, identifying the right researchers at Urban to partner with them, receiving the feedback that, like, oh, you know, Leslie or the people on her team were able to help our organization improve in these ways. Or took this weight off of us, you know these smaller, you know nonprofits or nonprofits that don't just simply don't have a lot of capacity us to be able to do something for them to improve their organization, improve their processes, improve their data. It was just really, really rewarding because we know, I think, from this current crisis, like from the pandemic, we know that community-based organizations, people providing families right with food, legal services, tax support. Shelter, employment services, workforce development programs are essential to keeping our our cities and our communities sort of thriving. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Knowing how busy and overwhelmed and inundated they are to be able to sort of take something off their plates and like actually provide them with like a tangible benefit and not just take from them like, oh, give us your data and tell us more about this, but actually be able to help them has been incredible. And I'll just use one other Example, um, as a part of a housing project that we've been working on, I got the chance to provide some support and some guidance to a couple of organizations, one of which is attempting to build home ownership among Black folks by taking folks who've been formerly homeless and providing them with a path to home ownership. And like nothing I think was more inspiring than thinking about, you know, knowing the The challenge of homelessness, period, around the country is, you know, unreal in this country. And then to know that there are people who are thinking about building a replicable strategy to get folks not from homelessness to temporary housing or shelter, but actually put them on the path to home ownership was so rewarding. And to be able to work with them and help them build and craft like a funder narrative and how to go out and solicit investment from funders who by and large should really, really be interested in this work, was incredibly rewarding. So I think it's that interaction with nonprofits who are doing the real work and providing them with support and guidance and like translating all this research knowledge that we have at Urban to help benefit them is probably the most rewarding part of my job.
0: I love it. I love it. And you're doing this in our nation's capital. You're in the center of everything. So the fact that you are there and just the belief that you have in helping others and not only that helping people who look like you and me is even more satisfying now we are heading into the home stretch and leslie i just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to converse with us here on the trade worldwide so i want to take it back home for a second and heading into our next segment of the podcast which is my favorite Okay. So, everybody who comes on Detroit Worldwide to ask them this following question. If they had to identify a song in their opinion that best represents Detroit, what would that song be? So, Dr. Leslie Ford, I pose this question to you. If you had to identify that particular song that best represents Detroit, what would it be?
1: So, Marquise, I feel like... I should select, you know, like a Motown classic, you know, like a Stevie Wonder song, a Marvin Gaye song. I feel like I should select, you know, something that the, the funk band is playing on. However, I am going to go with Big Sean's D-Boy. Mm. That is a song that reminds me most of the city. And I will say this. When I was preparing to defend my dissertation, that is the song that I listened to on repeat. Mm. And I, a lot of people don't know that song. So it is, let me make sure I get the, the artists who are involved in this right. So it's D-Boy by Big Sean. It features HBK, Dusty McFly, and Say It Ain't Tone. And it is most important not to just listen to the song, but you have to watch the video because it's clearly shot in Detroit. There are fur coats involved, Cartier glasses. There's a lot of Detroit classic elements. And it just, it reminds me of that go get it attitude. There's no place like Detroit on this planet. And I think from the art scene, the culture scene, the music scene, the authenticity of the people, The collectiveness that you feel in the neighborhoods, that degree of separation, the connectivity that you feel like you can meet another person from Detroit in another city. You are one degree, you know somebody in common.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. D-Boy reminds me of all of that. It has like this hard beat. It has that Detroit float. It is inspiring, it is motivating, it lifts you, it's gritty, and it just reminds me so much of home. So that is my Detroit
0: song. Okay, I think I may know this song, but Sean has been dropped so many times. when so Asked this question by people, and shout out to Sean for dropping that Detroit too. That shit banged. It's my first curse word of the day. So you are doing some amazing work. What does the future look like for you? And how can we best support you as a community?
1: Wow, that is such a great question. So I am actually trying to find ways to translate the work that I am doing at Urban more into Southeast Michigan and Mm. try to develop more partnerships, more relationships, and take just some of those learnings, I think not from DC to Detroit, but take some of the learnings from Detroit to DC and other cities. Mm. As you well know, after Detroit's bankruptcy, the partnerships between the philanthropic community and the municipal government and private business really stabilized Detroit and put it in a position where there is, you know, this renewal and this renaissance and this you know revitalization that is now not just concentrated in downtown and midtown, but is now extending into the communities. And so I want to see all of those neighborhoods and those communities, the ones that mean so much to me that I came from. So the Russell Woods, the Elmwood Parks, the Rosedale, Boston Edison. I want to see the city thrive and I want to see it return to its former glory. So what I hope to do next uh, is figure out a way to either translate my work to focus more on Detroit or find ways to build, you know, greater... Uh, connectivity and collaboration between what's going on in Detroit and what we're doing here in D.C.
0: I love it. I love it. And with everything that you're doing, how can people get in contact with you?
1: So I am on Twitter at Leslie underscore Ford and my name is spelled L-E-S L-E-I-G-H underscore Ford. And um, yeah, it would be great for folks to follow me and I'll certainly follow back and connect through Twitter.
0: For sure, for sure. We make sure we get those on the show notes. And before we get to the last question, again, I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to converse with us. I'm really proud and excited for the work that you're doing. Again, you are the first person we've had on the trade worldwide that is a graduate of Harvard and also a graduate of Duke University. Dr. Leslie Ford. I got to put some respect on your name because you out here doing it. So again, I just wanted to say thank you. So the last question that I have, and that question is simple. What does Detroit mean to you?
1: Detroit means to me everything and represents home, culture, music, fashion, the Black middle class, the Black hood, it represents down but not out. It represents disinvestment and self-empowerment. Detroit means a place that thrives in spite of everything that has been taken from it and a place where Blackness is valued centered and celebrated and we have to do everything we can to maintain that in our city and i just want to see and i see you know pockets of it when i go home and i see you know evidence of it in so 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 many places but it just feels like for lack of a better term it feels like the realest place in the world to me
0: Hmm. i received that wholeheartedly And I appreciate that response. Leslie, Dr. Leslie Ford, thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Worldwide. Again, shout out to the bro, David Tinsley, for connecting the two of us. You have so much good stuff going for you.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This was such a great conversation. And it was such a gift to just reflect on the city and reflect on my upbringing there and all like you said all the lessons that I learned there and that we collectively learned there like I feel like we we've all benefited so much from that and um, I'm so thankful for you for doing this and finding another way to like For those of us who I think are in this Detroit diaspora, (laughs) to remain connected and to have something in common to sort of reflect on. Like, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for allowing me to chat with you on your platform. I really appreciate it.
0: For sure, for sure. So on behalf of Dr. Leslie Ford, I am Marquise Taylor. This is Detroit Worldwide. We're going to both holler at y'all on the other side. Peace. Loving what you're hearing then feel free to leave us feedback. Feedback can be posted online when listening to Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave a review as well. You can also find us on the gram at Detroit Worldwide Podcast and on Twitter at Detroit World Pod. This platform would not exist without your support. I thank you.